Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. In you I find my joy. Hey everybody, Alex here. Hey, um, due to some technical difficulties, uh, we actually don't have the recording from Sunday night, this last Sunday, unfortunately. So here I am sitting in uh, my office, just coming to you uh, with the message from Sunday. And uh, we're going to work our way through it together. And uh, I'm quite excited. Um, if you have your Bible or if you have your phone in front of you, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter two. That's where we're going to be. We're in a series on our core values. You know, every year we do this series on uh, the vision of Saints Hill. We're constantly trying to put the vision and the values of Saints Hill uh, in front of you um, for a number of different reasons. I think the first reason is because we want to lead through the vision we feel like God has given us. Uh, this isn't a, we didn't sit down and try to come up with, you know, what would be a good vision for a church or what would be good values for a church. We feel like these are things God revealed uh, through other ministries and other places, um, and also just relationally, you know, one of the things that we say around our church is that when you find your people, you find your destiny. Some some of you are finding your people at Saints Hill. Saints Hill is becoming family, and your your destiny is getting unlocked. And uh, I found that to be true for sure uh, with people like Jake uh, V Hill, Becky V Hill, Andoni, and Lorna Montano, and Jim Trout, and. Uh, Bria and Tyler Walter, just some of the, the foundational people who have planted uh, Saints Hill. And um, so one of the things that we want to do is we want to just bring these values that we've discovered through relationship and through ministry before you. But I'm also starting to think differently about these core values. You know, we have 10 core values and we call them core values. And, and I think they are core values, um, but they've really become even more than that. Um, they're not just values to hold within your mind or even your heart. They have become for me vows to our church, just like a husband would make to a wife or a wife to a, hus- a husband. Um, these have become vows to our church and to the Lord of how we will see and how we will live, how we will pastor, how we will lead. Uh, we're just not going to change the subject. So if you read those 10 core values, we're not changing the subject from now until uh, the Lord calls us home. But we have really seen over the past two years, these vows, these core values um, first, we spoke them out. I remember two years ago giving this very a message very similar to this one, working through all of our 10 core values. We spoke them out, and then they became, I started to see in your guys' lives, I started to see that they became choices. Um, you began to choose uh, to make those values your own values. They began to inhabit your heart, inhabit your home, your actions. And slowly but surely, I've seen them become culture. They've become culture in um, our church. They've become culture in our homes. And I believe that they are beginning, the very beginning stages of becoming culture in our town. And so uh, tonight, if you are new, um, or today, if you're new and it's the first time you've tuned in, or maybe you're the kind of person that you already have these up on your refrigerator at home, I want you to think of each of these values as a door, as an invitation to greater intimacy, to greater connection, to maybe even becoming a vow of your own to the Lord. So let's read Philippians chapter two, verse one says this. 
Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our third value is Jesus is Lord. The entirety of experiencing the kingdom is a lordship issue. It may sound very basic, but if you want to know what Saints Hill is about, this is core to who we are as a people. We experience the kingdom that Jesus described and depicted in the gospels to the degree that we make him Lord. And what's interesting to me is that, you know, we're living in this time and in this age where people are desperate for the kingdom, but they really don't think they want the king. In C.S. Lewis's uh, words, he said this, they have removed the heart and still demanded a heartbeat. Our current culture and the kingdom is pretty much at odds. Many of, you know, people in the United States want all of the benefits of justice, grace, mercy, unconditional love, but many have a hard time with their source. People want really good things. If you think about it, they want racism eradicated. They want abundance for the poor. They want peace instead of war. They want a loss of self-righteousness and an increase of humility in our leaders. And to all that, we say yes and amen. We want the same as Saints Hill Church. But I have to say, a pursuit of the byproducts of the kingdom without the king will at best yield a different sort of inequality on earth, and at worst, it will yield the control of others. A pursuit of the byproducts of the kingdom without the king will at best yield a different type of inequality, and at worst, the control of others. See, you could chase after, as a church community, city renewal, (laughs) worship gatherings, and teaching like we do every Sunday evening, evangelistic campaigns, discipleship curriculum, social justice. You could do all of those things and you could still miss Jesus because he didn't come to give us a better law, like just do these things. If you just do these things, then you're in. Here's here's what it's going to take. Or even a better way of living, but to give us himself. See, The kingdom isn't accessed through a plan, but through a purpose. And if you don't have him, you don't have the kingdom. And this is difficult for many to stomach because within the confession of his lordship is the cost of discipleship. Within the confession of his lordship 
is the cost of discipleship. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn uh, to the left in your Bibles from Philippians to Matthew chapter 16. The book of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew 16, I want to show you what I mean by this. Within the confession of Jesus's lordship is the cost of discipleship. And uh, we get a really great moment here with um, Jesus and Peter in Caesarea Philippi. So Matthew 16, and look down your Bibles at verse 15. It says this, but what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Skip down to verse 21. After this moment, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, sheesh, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Do you see that? What's going on in this in this passage is that it's the understanding of who Jesus was, who do you say I am? Your Lord. That understanding then created a responsibility to take up the same lifestyle. The understanding that Jesus was Lord demanded in Peter and the rest of the, the disciples and in us today the responsible to t- the responsibility to take up the same lifestyle in which Jesus walked, to lay down our lives, to lose our lives, and to find it. And, you know, honestly, it freaked Peter out. It totally freaked him out. It was like, that's not part of the plan. How about you be Lord and it doesn't cost me anything? And I don't know about you, but to me, just knowing this kind of fear that Peter had, what I realized as I was reading this, it comforted me because I realized that it was possible for Jesus to build his church on the confession of a fearful person. It is possible for Jesus to build his church on the confession of someone who still has some fear in their heart. One of the things I love about Jesus is that in the kingdom, it's like king, like subject, like father, like son, like father, like daughter. There's nothing that Jesus asks of us to do that he hasn't already done himself. And that's what we see in this story. And this is really what Paul is saying there back in Philippians chapter two. He's saying, have his, having his mind, having Christ's mind to lay your life down, to let humility be the focus of your life sets every disciple on a journey. And here's the journey. It's die to self and become glorious. 
It's die to self and produce kingdom results. It's the same journey Jesus took. From that point forward, he began talking about the journey he was going to take and inviting his disciples to take the same journey because it's the death that he died being incorporated into that that produces the resurrection life being incorporated into that. It's die to self and watch the fruit of the kingdom be the result. And really, this is a beautiful reality for any kingdom person, any disciple, any son of the father and daughter of the father, that with Jesus, the kingdom begins to come through your sacrifice. We have a role to play. So with that being said for us, I have three if-then statements. If Jesus is Lord, then, and the first of which is this, if Jesus is Lord, then our idolatry must die. If Jesus is our king, then we can't have any other king. It's very easy to relegate idolatry to people who actually made wooden or golden items in which they worshiped. But idolatry happens anytime we worship the creation rather than the creator. Think about that. Idolatry happens anytime we worship the creation rather than the creator. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, worship? I I don't know if I worship anything. I mean, I come on to church on Sundays and I know there's a moment in the gathering called worship, but I'm not sure that I'm actually worshiping anything. Well, I want you to think about this. Whatever you fear most, your worship is likely close by. Whatever you fear most, your worship is likely close by. Or another way to put it, whatever you fear, the adverse is often what you treasure. So you fear loneliness? Well, you treasure a companion. You worship having a person in your life. You fear insignificance? Well, you probably treasure attention. You fear appearing ugly? Well, you probably treasure and worship image. You fear being on the wrong side of history? You treasure popular opinion. And these treasures become what we worship. And what we worship becomes our Lord. And this leads to idolatry. And idolatry is this. It's a willingness to make sacrifices to achieve what we want from our treasure or protect our treasure. If it's a person I'm will- and I worship that person, they're my idol, I would be willing to make sacrifices to get what I want from that person or to protect that person remaining in my life. And on down the list, as you can imagine. See, we know from scripture that perfect love casts out fear. In fact, we also know that the person who fears is not perfected in love. Now, what does this mean? I think it means this. There's two roads and t- uh, from two choices that we can make. The choice to fear means that you remain wrapped up in serving your treasure. Perfect love could cast that fear out, but because your fear and worship are, worship are closely aligned, the choice to fear remains makes you wrapped up in serving your treasure. But the other choice and the other road is this. It's the choice to allow love to perfect you. Think about this. If I have fear in life that is leading me to worship or treasure something other than God, what it tells me is that there are still pieces of my heart that have yet to be taken by the love of Jesus. 
what, what, what did we just say? He who fears is not perfected in love, but if you allow that love to perfect you, guess what happens? Perfect love casts out fear. So if I have fear in my life that is leading me to worship or treasure something other than God, what that tells me is that there are still pieces of my heart that have yet to be taken by the love of Jesus. Like, what we have to understand is we have to understand that idolatry is serious because it leads us to pledge allegiance to something other than, than God. But with a good father like the father that we have, there is a joyful journey of learning where we have yet to get fully loved by him. It's like, oh, I have this fear in my life. I also have this worship in my life. Now I know where I haven't let you love me. When you make him Lord, you're putting a target on all of your idols and you're saying, I'll submit to your love right there. I've been doing this recently. I've been going on these hikes uh, out at the Abbey. And as I'm on these hikes, I'm just, it's the joyful journey of knowing I have a good father who loves me. Every day wakes up, he's in a good mood. He smiles down upon me. He, it's, the scriptures say he he sings and dances over my life. And, and, and I even just think, you know, honestly about the love that I have for my own daughter and just the ability to, you know, look over any kind of fault that she may have so quickly because of the love that I have. And that's a flawed, mortal human love. How much more does he love me? So I've been going on these walks and I've been thinking about all of my idols. I got a few and I've been bringing them before him. And I've been just, it's been, it's been just this joyful journey of going, oh, I've yet to let you love me there. Oh, and right there, I've yet to let you love me right there. I'm putting a target on my idols and saying, I'll submit to your love again. So first, if Jesus is Lord, then our idolatry must die. Secondly, if Jesus is Lord, the political spirit must die. It's incredibly important for us to understand the political climate of the day in Philippi when Paul claimed that Jesus is Lord. What he was directly saying was that Caesar is not Lord and neither is the royal family, which was the contention in the day and age of this letter being written. Caesar was a god and thus he was Lord. Specifically in Philippi, here's what one historian says, the imperial family, including Augustus, his wife Livia, and her grandson Claudius were all worshiped in the imperial cult in Philippi. When Paul wrote this letter, each member of the imperial family understood at their death that they would be changed into a god. So you have to imagine when Paul is writing this, he says, every knee will bow. And you know, they're like, yep, totally. They're going to bow to that imperial family. And every tongue is going to confess. And they're like, yep, yeah, the Caesar, right? And then he says that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you have to imagine they're like, wait, what? <laughs> this was very dangerous to say and completely radical. And though we don't deify our politicians uh, today, or at least most of us don't, the claim that Jesus is Lord goes beyond this first century context and into our own because politics still has the ability to claim lordship. Politics still has this ability to claim our given lordship. Because politics deal with the core of what a human's worldview is, it is so easy to pledge allegiance to a party subconsciously. 
to pledge allegiance to a vision of human flourishing because the results of politics are so real and so immediate and so present. I just got done watching the debate uh, of the vice presidents, the presidential candidates and the vice president. And um, you can instantly hop on Twitter and everything that was just said has been analyzed, fact-checked, thought through uh, and argued about within minutes. Politics has this ability to, to, to pull our hearts into it because the results are just so real and so present. And this is an honest challenge for me. I, I've really begun to ask myself, especially in an election year, who shapes me more, God or the news? If you were to simply look at the time that I spend with the Lord— in a day, and the time that I spend hearing both sides, looking at different issues, becoming informed, uh, there's an imbalance. And, And I've really come to see that the best thing that I can do is not to get all the facts. Look, facts are important. Trust me, I'm a fact guy. I want to know the facts. But I have found that as a follower of Jesus, the best thing that I can do is find out what God is saying about humans and the way that the kingdom works so that my mind is shaped around what he says. I've heard this recently and I've begun to kind of adopt it for myself. Until I have gone to get God's thoughts on a matter, I have no right as a follower of Jesus to speak on the matter. Until I've gone to get God's thought, God's thoughts about a matter, I have no right to speak on that matter. See, I, I think in our current political age, there is a massive temptation to allow politics to do what Jesus wants to do, which is what? Define our vision of the kingdom. Jesus wants to define our vision of my vision, your vision of the kingdom. And there's this temptation to allow a political figure or a political party or a political pundit or a commentator to define our vision of what the kingdom is. I recently read this New York Times article um, on the new evangelicals. Some younger people, a lot of people who are probably listening to this right now, um, who are evangelical Christians. And uh, in 2016, 80% or, you know, these are the numbers from 2016. They're still a little fuzzy, but 80% is it's thought to, to be that 80% of evangelicals voted for Trump. The world was shocked. A man with such horrible character, how on earth could these Christians vote for Donald Trump? And so they did this interview between with people between the ages of 22 and 27 about their faith. And uh, one of them speaking on her political uh, affiliations, this is what she said. She said this, the world I was dreaming about was not the world my church was dreaming about. The world liberal evangelicals want to see is the one conservative evangelicals hope doesn't happen. Do do you see what that is? There are competing visions. There's one conservative vision of the kingdom and there's one liberal vision of the kingdom. And the question that I have begun to ask is, where did we get those visions and how could they be so off if we're looking at the same person? This has led to massive division in the church. And in fact, I think in this year, I'm seeing more and more fracturing of churches. I think we're seeing a new great split between social justice churches and churches that do not make social justice the emphasis. And you're going to continue to see churches split along those lines. Um, The thing that really gets to me, though, is that I think the Bible gives us a unified vision. 
Uh, it's one of the reasons why I've spent the past three, four years putting together a class called God and Government. Um, we're in the middle of it right now, and we're going to be releasing the audio for that here pretty soon, have it up on our website. We'll make sure that you know about it. Um, and we've been going through basically how do we get a unified vision of what the kingdom is as believers and how does that inform our civic responsibility uh, here in the United States? So I think that there is a kingdom unified vision to aim for, but I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus had a disciple whose name was Matthew and he was a tax collector. Um, tax collectors were thought to be some of the most elite people within uh, certainly Jerusalem's culture and uh, Israel's culture. They were in bed with the government. They were benefiting on the backs of stealing from uh, Israelites uh, their money. Um, and so he was, he was on one side of the political spectrum. Then you have another disciple named Simon. He was a zealot. The zealots were crazy. They were essentially anarchists who would literally stab with little knives um, compromised Christians or compromised uh, Jews in crowded places like marketplaces or, um, you know, the temple court or something like that. People who they had believed compromised politically and certainly tax collectors, they were violent uh, uprisers. And so you have to imagine these two men represented the polar opposite sides of the political world within the first century uh, Israel. They were mortal enemies and yet they're both disciples. So you want to know something that's interesting? You never hear about their conversations. You never hear about like Jesus and Matthew and Levi, or not Levi, Simon sitting down and with one another and, and Jesus saying, hey, you know, okay, so look, so look, Matthew, he's kind of right over here and he's got a point. And, and, and Simon, look, he's, he actually is, is kind of more the right one. So maybe if you just, we never hear about those conversations. Instead, what is Jesus known for? Jesus is known for signs and wonders, describing the kingdom, humility, prophetic conversations. In fact, when Jesus was confronted about paying taxes and the two opposing groups were trying to trap him in an either or, pay, if Jesus says pay taxes, then he's in bed with Rome. Or if he says don't pay taxes, then we're going to call him political revolutionary. The ultimate goal of this moment is to undo his influence. But what neither side could see is that they can't undo his influence because Jesus didn't gain political influence through political action. Jesus gained influence from doing good and healing those who needed it. So his political takes wouldn't have mattered much to the person he just healed. And honestly, neither will our political takes as Christians matter much if we do what he did. Here's a lens I wanna, I wanna give you, or uh, kind of a, a little idea or fun exercise for you this week. Read the book of Acts. Just go ahead and read the book of Acts. Uh, it, it won't take long. It'll take maybe, maybe you know, 20, 30 minutes or something like that um, for two days straight or something like that. And you can get through the book of Acts. But go ahead and read through the book of Acts. And I want you to ask yourself, is my vision for my family and friends less than this? Is my political vision for my town less than what I read in the book of Acts? Ask yourself this question. Do I want my personal political vision more than I want this? See, when we pledge allegiance to a political philosophy, we have chosen where to level off with the kingdom in our lives. When we choose to align ourselves with a political philosophy, 
more than we choose to align ourselves with what we read in the book of Acts. We have chosen where to level off with the kingdom in our lives. So let's not do that. We're going to be the kind of church, guys. You guys are the kind of people who do what Jesus did. I can't wait for this Sunday. We have some testimonies from this last Sunday that will blow your mind. People being truly healed. So let's show the world what the real king brings, the real kingdom. And he's going to do that through you. So if Jesus is Lord, our idolatry must die. If Jesus is Lord, our political spirit must die. And lastly, if Jesus is Lord, then our religion must die. I was in a conversation with one of my uh, mentors about spiritual disciplines this past week. And, And he said this, he said, there is a fine line between relationship with God and self-righteousness. The things that you do for your relationship with God and the things you do to feel like you are in a relationship with God. Do you see the difference? It's a very, very thin line. I've spent some time over the past few years talking to Christians who make it a couple years in, in relationship with God. And then the passion begins to wane a little bit and they find themselves sort of wishing that there was a formula, wishing that there was a system or there were steps in place to guarantee Christ's likeness. And in some sense, I think it is the desire to know that you're really saved. Like, I think there is that sense of like, am I really saved? Am I really on Jesus' side or not? And and sometimes these discipleship curriculums and formulas and steps give us an assurance of, well, at least I'm doing that. I think there's another sense, and I think it is the desire to do something, even when you're feeling like God is distant. And so you feel like God is distant, and, and it, but at least you're waking up and you're reading his word. And I honestly think there's something to that. I think that's a, those, are, those are okay feelings to have. But I also think that a formula is easier than a relationship. See, a formula lays out the sacrifices at the beginning, It says, here's what it's going to take. It would almost be as if Jesus, when he asked Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're the Messiah. If Jesus had said, okay, well, it's just going to take you, you know, you need a quiet time every day. And uh, you're also going to need to, we do at least one day of fasting, dawn to dusk. And, uh, you know, so here's what it is. And he would have been like, wow, that's a lot easier than taking up my cross and following you. So sure, I'm in. A formula lays out the sacrifices at the beginning, but a relationship can surprise you by what comes to the surface in it and what may need to die in you, what may need to be pruned in the language of John 15. In one way of life, you retain control. You have the control over the formula and you say, I'm going to either follow the formula or not. In the other way of life, you say, here is my life. I lay it down. You're my king. In one way of living, You are the king deciding what to do to be good with God. And the other way, he is the king who loved you beyond your ability to pay him back. This is really uh, something I've been thinking about recently. The, The more you allow God to love you, the more control over your life you lose. The more you allow him to love you, the more control you lose because he can love you in such a way that it completely, uh, there's no possible way for you to pay him back. Religion is the idea that there are 
steps in place that allow you to achieve the promised goal of personal fulfillment, nirvana, or justification. But what is fascinating to me is that the the door to the kingdom is described in the scriptures as your door, not the kingdom's door. The door to the kingdom is described as your door, not the kingdom's door. Now, now what am I getting at? What what do I mean? Well, in the book of Revelation, one of the letters to uh, the seven churches, Jesus says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens to me, I will come in and eat with them. Isn't that interesting? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. We're like, okay, what door? Well, it says if anyone opens to him, he'll come in and eat with them. So you're on the other side of the door. He knocks, he stands and he knocks at every person's door. See, what this means is that if it was the kingdom's door or heaven's door, then you would have to travel to get to it. You would have to do things to get to that door. There would be a journey to to get to the door of the kingdom in which you then opened and walked in. But since it is your door, It is the door within your heart and your mind. All you have to do is open to his knock. The kingdom comes as you invite him in for dinner into every part of your life. I think Brother Lawrence perfectly modeled this through his practice of hosting God's presence. Even while he was washing dishes in the monastery in which he lived, he said this, The time of business does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and the clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were on my knees. Religion compromises relationship with God for a sense of feeling justified through doing Christian things. But if Jesus is king, then he becomes the goal himself. And you get the pleasure, regardless of whether you're washing dishes, driving to work, at work, with your children, you get the pleasure of staying with him all day. I heard someone say once, that we are the only religion that doesn't have a 12-step process to freedom. We simply have one step, and it's the step that Jesus gave to Peter on that day. Come and die. Take up your cross and follow me. And when you do that, Jesus says this, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. See, religion creates the slave mentality by requiring performance to be loved. Relationship creates constant love receivers. Don't you want to be that, a love receiver? Like, what do you do? Oh, I'm a love receiver. What are you doing this weekend? I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to receive some love. Religion creates this slave mentality by requiring performance to be loved. But relationship, understanding that no, you're already, you belong before you behave, understanding that creates constant love receivers. And when you say Jesus is Lord, or when you look at him and you say you are Lord, you move from the place of trying to earn his benefits to a place of receiving the benefits that come from him being the king. And this is the invitation to you today. 
Make him king. Experience his presence. Lastly, and to end, if Jesus is Lord, then the kingdom must come. I think it would be a shame to simply talk about his lordship without experiencing it practically. Paul says this in Romans 15, verse 19. By the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Matthew 4, verse 23 says this, Jesus went around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing all diseases. Here's the truth. The proclamation of the kingdom, the proclamation of the gospel was not complete and was not full without a demonstration of signs and wonders. Heaven coming to the body, heaven coming to the mind. See, Jesus' lordship leads to a kingdom reality, which is he's Lord over the body, so sickness must go. He's Lord over the heart, identity must be put back into place. He's Lord of the mind, so truth must replace lies. Jesus' lordship is shown through his power today. So I want to pray for you that you would experience a sign of God's lordship over your life today. And I want you to be aware as you go on your way, whether you're going to work right now, whether you're on a walk, whether you're sitting in your your living room, I want you to ask God in this moment, how do you want me to present the full gospel today? Is there somebody that you want to speak in my life that you want to speak to? What are you saying? Maybe even do that right now, God. Is there anybody who you want to bring to mind right into our minds right now, who you want us to share prophetically with? Give us your thoughts about them. Maybe there's somebody to pray for. Maybe there's somebody who's sick in your life and you need to pray for them. And then you need to text them and see how they're doing. Or you need to just call them and see if you can pray with them. Jesus' lordship is shown through his power today. So let me pray for you. God, thanks so much for our church. It's so fun to uh, be two years in celebrating our second anniversary this week. And uh, we just give you praise. We give you praise for what you've done, the people that you've healed, the kingdom expansion that you've begun. And now I ask over these people who are listening right now that you would bless them with your presence today and they would know your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And if we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website, saintshill.church. And the yoke is so much easier.